This is They Create Worlds, episode 121, The Whole Video Game Industry, part 4. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. Well, Alex, we did it. We are at our final episode in this series. Yeah, it's been a long trip. Hard to believe that we are finally at the final episode of this crazy look at video games. But before we get started, I did want to change tracks just briefly and give a little shout-out. There's a guy we mention a lot on this show, Ethan Johnson who is really, really active in kind of the independent scholar community, independent video game scholar community that I would also consider myself a part of. He brings people together. He finds information. He's generous with sharing his information and is really a a linchpin in everything that all of us are doing. He has now written a book. He has done a book of interviews with 1970s video game programmers called Candid Conversations in Code. It's uh, interviews with several people that have really never been interviewed before, as well as uh, some people have been interviewed a couple of times, but not necessarily as thoroughly as he's done. There's some Atari people in there like Dave Shepard and Rich Moore from the old arcade coin-op days. There's Jamie Fenton in there, who's always a wonderful interview subject. David Rolfe, who was early on in television stuff. Mark Lesser, who was early on Mattel handheld stuff. So there's just some really nice interviews in there. It's part of the latest Retro Game Story Bundle. David Craddock, who's also written some books on video game history, most uh, significantly his two-part look at Blizzard North and the making of Diablo and Diablo 2, has put together these retro story bundles every so often, uh, soliciting independent authors. Story bundle for people that don't know, it's a great deal. You pay what you want. But the minimum is usually something like 10 or 15 bucks to get everything in the bundle. So for like 15 bucks, you can get eight books. Some of them are longer. Some of them are shorter. Some of them are more interesting. Some of them are less interesting, depending on your tastes. $15 for that many books is just a, a great price. Really, Ethan's book is worth that alone, even if none of the others appeal to you. Ethan helps us out a lot. We don't normally promote things on the show. We don't normally want to promote things on the show. Ethan is is such a friend to us that we wanted to make people aware of this. The story bundle goes for about another 48 hours after this episode drops. So if you want it and you haven't gotten it yet, you don't have much time. But if you just go to storybundle.com, right there on the front page, you'll see uh, exclusive retro game as one of the bundles at the top. You can click in there and uh, do what you need to get that. Proceeds go uh, you know directly to the author. Or you can also uh, give some of the proceeds to charity as well. You can decide how much of what you pay goes to the author, goes to a charity of your choice, uh, etc. Candid Conversations in Code, Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, Story Bundle, check it out. All right, that's quite a way to start off our sixth year here. (laughs) Absolutely, and he's been with us from the beginning, so (laughs) thanks a lot for that, Ethan. All right, now that we have that done... Where exactly did we leave off when we completed episode three? Yes, where we left off, we left off with the console war between uh, Nintendo and Sega. 
what we basically tried to establish in the last episode is how kind of the industry norms came together that are still even the industry norms today. You have Nintendo pushing a new console paradigm based on lockouts and royalties and some moderation of content. Even though Nintendo has taken that far more extremely than companies do today, there is still content moderation today. Contrary to popular belief, Sega did actually engage in content moderation as well. They just didn't do it to the same tortured degree as Nintendo did. We've got that console paradigm set. Third parties are starting to organize themselves around this concept of contracts, milestone payments, studio systems, producers, etc. Britain at this point is still a little bit Wild West. Europe's still a little bit Wild West. Some bigger companies have emerged out of the chaos that was the early British industry. You have Ocean Software now in a very prime position, for instance. And of course, you have Virgin, which is on the verge of becoming Sega Europe, that is also in a kind of big position. You're seeing a lot of industry norms come into being in this time period. As the 90s progress, now that the industry is kind of established and has kind of established a base core demographic and a basic way of doing business, the rest of the 1990s is really about expanding that audience, expanding that user base, and of course, getting more and more into interconnected worlds and interconnected groups of people. So how do we get through all of that in two hours? Well, we don't, but we're going to do it anyway. I do want to go back now. We've taken console forward a certain amount. I do want to go back and catch up on what's going on in the PC space. What's happening in the PC space is about to violently collide with what is happening in the console space and create the new paradigm going forward that still exists into this day. The first thing we have to talk about in the way computer games develop here is there's a change that was a long time coming that goes all the way back to the 1960s. There were kind of two fields of research. I mean, there were many fields of research, but we like being reductive, especially when there's no time. There were kind of two ways of looking at how computers were going to change the world. A lot of what we've looked at so far has come out of the artificial intelligence school. The idea that we're going to make computers that can think for themselves, that get more and more powerful, that can control everything so that we can live lives of leisure while the computers do all the work until the Cylons kill us all. That's kind of one branch, and a lot of what we've looked at so far has come out of that branch. Space War, for instance, that seminal game, one of our inflection points from way back in the day, if anyone still remembers that, a lot of the people that were involved with that were involved with the Artificial Intelligence Lab at MIT. Then where Nolan Bushnell saw it was at the Stanford Artificial Intelligence Lab at Stanford University. But there was another branch of computer research that never really believed that AI was going to be a thing, or at least AI was something that was such a distant pipe dream that it wasn't worth being the main focus now. That's the idea of augmentation, human augmentation, and man-machine interaction, where computers aren't going to take over the work. Computers are just going to make the work a lot easier for the rest of us. It was really the augmentation crowd that were most concerned about making human-computer interaction as comfortable and intuitive as possible. This is where you get, for instance, Douglas Engelbart entering the story at the Stanford Research Institute, which, just like the Stanford Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, has Stanford in the name, but believe me, they hate each other's guts. Or 
hated each other's guts back in the day. They were on different tracks on how to do things. The Engelbart approach was to make that human interaction more comfortable, and that's why he created the mother of all demos and demonstrated the first mouse and did stuff that was somewhat akin to hypertext later on, not that he invented it, but similar kind of ideas of clicking through things on a screen. A lot of that research was research that was born in the military-industrial complex, like so much of the other research that we've talked about so far. I mentioned way, way back, for those that remember, about how the end of the space race and the end of the Vietnam War really put an end to a lot of that. Not only were there massive cuts in defense spending, but there were reforms in the rules to how DARPA would grant money so that research had to be really focused on practical applications. There was no more blue sky research for the most part. It had to be practical. So this is really the point where corporate R&D takes over as the main driver of innovation in a lot of areas. Not that government doesn't still innovate at times, but corporate research becomes so much more important. A lot of the augmentation crowd, led by Robert Taylor, landed themselves when this whole DARPA gravy train ran out, landed themselves at Xerox, which had recently bought a mini-computer company on the West Coast that was an abject failure. They kind of conned Xerox into letting them do some of the research stuff. This was, of course, the establishment of the Xerox Park Research Facility, which in the early 1970s created a lot of what we think of as the computer environment that we live in today. They didn't invent the mouse, but they sure as heck took the mouse that Engelbart invented to the next level. They were doing lots of stuff with graphical user interfaces or GUIs. This was the beginning of the WYSIWYG. I love that acronym, the WYSIWYG word processor. It wasn't so WYSIWYG as you would have thought. <laughs> right, but uh, that uh, stands for what you see is what you get, which basically means that if you type something on the screen and then you print that something out, the two things will look pretty much the same to each other. All the formatting is there already. It's an incredibly influential organization. Alan Kay is, of course, there working on his miniaturization, got paint programs going on. I mean, there's just a ridiculous number of cutting-edge things. Ethernet gets its start there. Laser printing gets its start there. And laser printing is the only one of these things that Xerox actually takes and runs with because Xerox is a copier company. They are a printing company. They don't understand all of this other crazy stuff going on, and they eventually shut it all down. It becomes the hotbed for basically the creation of the modern GUI interface and the modern application framework for things like word processors. You can't overstate the importance. Of course, from there, the GUI interface famously jumps out of Xerox Park and into Apple computer products because Xerox is really excited about getting in on this Apple gravy train in the stock and really doesn't understand what kind of great advances they're doing in Xerox Park. So they let Steve Jobs poke around at everything and get an idea of what the future's going to look like. First on the Apple Lisa and then on the Apple Macintosh, they implement these GUI interfaces and you get something that's very akin to what's still on computers today in terms of the way operating systems look and feel. I use those terms very deliberately because Apple spent a very long time trying to convince the courts that look and feel was a very important thing that should be copyrightable. 
they didn't get as far as they would have hoped with that argument. Microsoft then, of course, borrows these concepts for Windows, and you get all this application stuff. But we don't want to look at it, uh, or operating system stuff. We don't want to look at it, though, from the point of view of operating systems. We want to look at it from the point of view, of course, of how this changed video games. Even as computer games were becoming more graphical as the 1980s wore on, they were still bound and still chained by this unfortunate need to do most inputs in text. Now, you could, of course, hook up a joystick to a computer. For certain types of games, you can do action and stuff. So even though a joystick could theoretically function similarly to a mouse in the sense that you could move an arrow around the screen using joystick motions, even if it's not as quick or responsive as a mouse would be, that's just not a paradigm of computing anyone had really thought of. Computer games were largely stuck in a text-based mode, even when King's Quest introduced fully animated graphical adventure games, you were still using a parser to type with. There were a few exceptions. Bill Budge's Pinball Construction Set in 1983 is a significant example, but of course Bill Budge had been at Apple and worked on the Lisa, and that's why he had the idea to do a GUI at that early date. You know, it entered his mind because of what was happening at Park not as an independent creation. I'm sure somebody somewhere came up with it independently and used it. The world's a big place. It was kind of that transition from Xerox Park to Apple Macintosh that really got people thinking about this more generally. In games, you see that manifest in a few different ways that are very significant, and I just want to run through a couple of those really fast. Certainly one of the true pioneers here was the game Dungeon Master. We talked about it in our Top 100 Most Influential Games series of episodes. It's really significant for a lot of reasons. It's a real-time game for the most part, even though it's still not completely off the grid. Things are happening around you even when you're not moving. It's not step-based. Earlier three-dimensional RPGs, when you take a step, stuff happens, but when you're not moving, the game world's not moving. Dungeon Master is fully real-time, but it also implemented a full GUI interface. All of those games that we still play today where you have an inventory equipment management system where you basically have a doll of your character and you have inventory slots and you're using your mouse to shift gear into inventory slots, that basically comes from Dungeon Master. Dungeon Master came out in 1987 and it was one of the first games to recognize that, oh, look how we can simplify interfaces. We can do clicking, we can do icons, we can do clicking and dragging objects onto other objects instead of tedious equip commands, hotkey shortcuts, and all of this nonsense. So that's one aspect of this. Another aspect, of course, is the adventure game. Sierra is wedded to the parser. Ron Gilbert at LucasArts, at what is then still Lucasfilm Games, absolutely hates the idea of the parser and hates the idea of playing guess what the parser wants you to type in to get the command right, he takes that GUI interface and runs with it as part of his scum engine to give you a system where you have a series of actions on one side of the screen, a series of inventory items on the other side of the bottom of the screen, and a game world full of other things that you can highlight and click on. By using a combination of verbs, items, and on-screen hooks, you can solve puzzles, and progress in the game. Sierra does go to an icon-based system as well, not too many years after that, but it's not as elegant a system as Scum. I think the other thing that it does is it makes 
complex strategy games more accessible. Complex strategy games are always going to be a kind of niche field, and they're still a niche field today for the most part. One thing that being able to quickly click through different things allows you to do is it allows you present complex information graphically. It allows you to move through screens rapidly so that you only have to give the player a little bit of information at any given time. I really think that even though this aspect of GUIs is not discussed so much, I really think that that's an important part of what makes civilization workable. Civilization, of course, Sid Meier's classic 1991 game. It was the progenitor of the 4X genre. I'm not saying it was the first one to do it. The entire term of 4X was coined to describe this kind of gameplay where you're expanding, exploring, exterminating, and doing something else that starts with X2. All the X things. And yes, I realize none of those words start with X. That's not the point. There's a new paradigm in strategy which allows you to keep track of a lot of information, basically play a lot of games within games, building cities, researching technology, advancing your military, etc., while keeping it all manageable for the average player. And I think that's kind of the reason why strategy games, starting with Civilization in 1991, really reach a new level of popularity at this point. The GUI interface really transforms the way the player interacts with the computer and sets the stage for more accessible games that are able to keep the depth of computer games as it existed in the 1980s, but present it in a palatable way that is going to grab a larger audience. The other thing that this does is it's a further step when we can get away from that darn parser. It's a further step of increasing our immersion in a world. If there's one thing that PC and computer games really brought to the table of what is soon to become a wider video game industry in the early 1990s, it's the idea of creating full immersion into a world space in a way that really hadn't been done before, at least on a consistent basis. The text adventure crowd would probably disagree with me. But when the text adventure crowd can convince a million of their closest friends to buy a text adventure, then we'll talk. This, of course, all happened on the PC. In the United States, after the crash, you had attempts to move computer gaming and move computer platforms forward. They were never very successful for a variety of reasons, mostly due to expense, quite frankly, mostly due to cost. So you had the Apple II and the Commodore 64 coming out of the crash, and they were kind of the big platforms on a computer game side. The Apple II was showing its age at this point. It was very creaky compared to the Commodore 64. The Commodore 64 had the advantage of having very good sprite capability and having a phenomenal sound chip. The Apple II was just getting very long in the tooth, but the platforms that came after just couldn't capture the imagination. Jack Tramiel's Atari tried to do the... Well, first you had the Macintosh, and the Macintosh was just a whole host of problems, especially from a gaming perspective, with its black and white screen and lack of arrow keys and ridiculous expense, inability to expand. They fixed some of this stuff in later iterations. Apple was never very enthusiastic about even encouraging gaming on its platforms, so that was kind of a dead end. 
Jack Trammell tried to do his cheap version of the Macintosh, the Atari ST, which was referred to at the time as the Jackintosh by a lot of people. The Atari ST had some positive points, including its MIDI interface, which made it uh, fantastic for doing music stuff. It had problems with distribution primarily. Jack Trammell is known for having problems getting a product manufactured, shipped, and retailed. The retail end specifically because he burns bridges with retailers all the time. He'll sell to somebody at a certain price and then he'll sell to somebody else at a cheaper price without warning the first person to discount their hardware so they get left with excess inventory. And he's done these kinds of things all the time. So the Atari ST never catches on as much as anything because it doesn't get good distribution out there. And then there's the Commodore Amiga. The Commodore Amiga started out as an attempt to make a next-generation video game system back in the early 1980s. It morphed into a computer after the crash, and it had some really phenomenal capabilities at the time it came out. It had better graphics than anything else in terms of screen resolution and number of colors. It was able to move sprites around very fast. It had a lot of good co-processing hardware for graphics. It also had a preemptive multitasking operating system. What I mean by that is these days, like right now, I am watching Jeff in Discord while I am watching Twitch chat and while I am recording in Reaper. All of these programs are allowed to do things at the same time because my operating system can do memory management in such a way that they all get to run all at once. Operating systems didn't used to be able to do that. If you had one program up on your screen, that was the only program running, and no other programs could run. The Amiga was the first to go preemptive, which meant that you could have multiple programs running and you could switch between them. So it had a lot of advanced features for the time, but in the United States, its introduction was really botched. It was just way too expensive. They didn't focus on games, even though games were a very logical place to go with it. And by the time they had started to recover their footing, they didn't have a place in the market anymore. In Europe, it was very different. They botched the launch in Europe, too. But then when they came back with their cheaper Amiga 500, which was more of a gaming system, because consoles were not as big in Europe as they were in the United States, the Amiga was embraced as a next-generation game-playing machine. Kind of took over from the, the ZX Spectrum and Commodore 64 generation and had a brief run from the end of the 80s to the beginning of the 90s where it had some success before consoles finally started infiltrating Europe as well. Sega did a good job in the early 90s of penetrating the European market. Nintendo slightly less so, but they still got there. Then their trajectory starts to be more in lockstep with what's going on in other parts of the world. The computer game platforms in the United States were still 8-bit platforms, even into the late 1980s, which was kind of silly in a way. Then the NES basically killed off what was left of that because the Commodore 64 couldn't compete as a game system with the Nintendo Entertainment System. It kind of fell off a cliff at that point. What happened in the meantime was that the IBM PC came out of nowhere to become a viable game platform. IBM released the IBM Personal Computer in 1981, and it was very much a business machine. They had a couple of games even at launch because they wanted to have a broad spectrum of product. Playing computer games on an IBM PC in the early days 
was a horrible experience unless cyan was your absolute favorite color in the world and you couldn't live without it. It had four color graphics. It had a very primitive speaker that could do bleeps and bloops. The memory management on the PC was pretty abysmal, which led to some difficulty in taking full advantage of setups that had more RAM. There were just all sorts of reasons why the PC was a disaster. IBM did try to get into the home computer market, that under $600 market that I mentioned before, with the release of the PC Junior. That was a complete disaster because it had a ridiculously bad keyboard. It was ridiculously hamstrung in its memory, and it wasn't even fully compatible with a regular PC. IBM had never gotten a foothold in that market, but because from the beginning they had used off-the-shelf components instead of special patented components, the only part of their system that was protected was their BIOS. That was relatively easily uh, reverse-engineered in a legal manner. So PC clones began to proliferate very soon after the PC. An arms race began between IBM and these clone makers to come up with the biggest, best, and cheapest of systems. Because of this, the PC actually developed very rapidly over the course of the 1980s. By the end of the decade, a couple of important things had happened. First of all, because of the clone competition, IBM decided to release a new model of the PC that was completely unbackwards compatible with any PCs that came before it and patent the heck out of the new technology. The basic thing that they were working with here was the bus of the computer, which is kind of the uh, highway along which all the data travels from the various peripherals within a computer to the CPU and back out again. It was the copying of that bus structure that allowed PC clones to be compatible with all the PC software. So they decided they were going to lock that down by creating a new bus that was patented and not backwards compatible. If they're going to create a new computer or a new version of the computer that is going to lock out all the old stuff, they have to make it tantalizing enough that it is going to be desirable as an upgrade over the old way of doing things. They did do this in a couple of different ways. This was their first computer that was a full 32-bit processor with a 32-bit bus, so it was more powerful. But they also included a new graphical standard called VGA. VGA was capable of doing up to 256 colors in certain graphical modes at a resolution of 320 by something or another. It doesn't matter. We're late into the podcast. Who knows? It allowed it to do more colorful graphics at medium resolution, as well as do less colorful graphics at a high resolution of 640 by 480, which back then was like the height of resolution. Now it's not even close. They came up with the VGA graphics standard, which finally gave IBM PCs a viable competitive edge when it came to things like the Commodore Amiga. They failed in creating a new standard because basically all the clone makers at that point were like, well, okay, then we'll just create our own bus standard with blackjack and hookers and backwards compatibility. That's what they did. That was kind of the end of IBM's relevance. At that point, the PC clones became the main PCs out there, and IBM slowly shrank away in that market. But they did give us the VGA standard before they went, which gave us credible graphics. At the same time, you were getting the first sound cards being developed by third parties that could be put in the machine, so you didn't have to just use the PC speakers bleeps and bloops. 
finally, because of the competition amongst the clone makers, you had a rush to the bottom on price so that things were getting cheaper and cheaper and computers could be brought into the home. Now, an IBM PC was still an expensive computer, so you still needed some kind of impetus to give people permission to buy in the same way that the early British computers proliferated the way they did because the government support of computers for education gave families permission to buy. There was partially the appeal of getting a computer for the home office. Executive types and white-collar types that up to this point had largely been leaving the computer work to their secretaries. Now, because of the ubiquitousness of the computers and the uh, increasing ease of use of the computers, were starting to more and more take up the computer for themselves rather than making their secretary do it or whatever. The idea of doing work at the office and doing work at home on a computer was starting to take hold in the corporate world, which meant that it was logical to have a PC at home as well as at work. But also on the other side of that, there was this allure of multimedia that was starting to permeate. There was this idea that now that you have this good graphical capability and good sound capability, and you have this little thing called CD-ROM coming along, that we are in for a earth-shattering change in the way we learn, where everything is now going to be, you get a CD-ROM, and that CD-ROM can have a whole library of books on it. Then when you get to the section on Martin Luther King, there'll be a picture of Martin Luther King, and then you can click on the picture, and it'll play his I Have a Dream speech. Oh my gosh, this will be the greatest thing ever, and multimedia will change the world. And Carter really changed some sort of world. (laughs) That's right. Encarta, but from Microsoft, the encyclopedia is a great example of that. There was this idea as we transition into the 90s, out of the 80s, that multimedia PCs were going to be a necessary fixture in education and in interacting with the world. Now, remember, this is pre-internet. So we're not talking about going online and clicking on a YouTube video. It turns out that the multimedia revolution really was the future, but it needed the internet to work. CD-ROM felt like endless capacity in, you know, 1988, but that 640 megabytes of storage space doesn't go as far as you think it does once you start getting lots of high-quality audio and high-quality video and all of that there. There's really not a capacity to really do multimedia the way it was being envisioned until you have the internet as well. Because of this idea of the multimedia revolution, that was another impetus, another permission to buy. Just like the British parent of 1982 thought that little Timmy was desperately in need of a ZX Spectrum so that he wouldn't be left behind in the new economy, so too did the American and even European and other places around the world think that little Johnny was going to be left hopelessly behind in this new world of education when everything is about multimedia and having a complete encyclopedia sitting on top of what I guess is your drink coaster on your computer, right? That's what that little tray is, the drink coaster? It's drink holder, not drink coaster. Drink holder. Ah, sorry. There you go. I had to be corrected on that one live on the air. This, combined with the need for work at home, gave great permission to the average consumer to buy And because the clone makers had driven down prices so much, PCs now felt like it was something affordable within the home. 
So you see a proliferation of PCs in the home at the beginning of the 90s, and you see PCs having a certain level of sophistication in terms of their graphics and sound capability. They naturally take over from the uh, Commodore 64 to become the new gaming system in terms of home computers. At the same time that this is happening, there is a real move towards realism in computer graphics, not just in the home, but in other venues as well, like in coin-op. Graphical systems are getting complex enough, memory is getting expansive enough that we can kind of start looking at making things appear more realistic. One of the first assaults on this actually happens in the arcade. The U.S. arcade industry, the U.S. coin-op industry, was in pretty bad shape at the beginning of the 1990s. In terms of coin drop in the arcade, the 80s were actually a very good decade. They actually were able to recover from their crash and actually peak at a higher level than they had peaked before the crash. For the manufacturers, most of them were devastated in the crash and didn't come back, and the ones that were still around were now just completely overwhelmed by the Japanese. The Japanese, with their idea of totally immersive worlds and these great action games with fluid art and fluid animation based on all these 1980s tropes, had kind of come in and taken over the arcade space in terms of manufacturing. This is the era of Sega and Konami and Capcom and Taito and all of these companies being the names that you saw in the arcade if you were walking in in the 1980s. As a consequence of that, the U.S. manufacturers were in kind of bad shape, and at Williams Manufacturing, Eugene Jarvis, who uh, long ago had created Defender, who we briefly, which we briefly mentioned, decided that if we can't beat them on art, because they are throwing legions of artists at everything, let's beat them in technology, because traditionally, the Japanese are followers on technology, not leaders. Once they have a technology, they will innovate on it and improve upon it make it more efficient and make it cheaper and do all of these wonderful things with it. But they are usually not the initiator of a new form of technology. Williams decides that they're going to create a digitized graphic system. Basically, they come up with a system where they can film actual people. Then they can digitize these graphics to transform these actual people into sprite images. They look far more realistic than hand-drawn art does. They don't always look as pretty, but they look more like real people. They first used this in a 1989 game called NARC, which is kind of the height of 80s action movie excess, where you are taking out all the drug dealers, one gigantic explosion at a time, body parts everywhere, very graphic for the time. I mean, tame by today's standards, but very graphic for the time. But, of course, they most famously used it in Mortal Kombat so that they could have fighters that looked very realistic, very human, or like multi-armed, not humans. They had to do that one in Claymation, obviously. Goru is Claymation rather than digitized actor. But what about Clay Fighter? <laughs> Clay Fighter. So you're having this move towards filming real actors, usually in front of a blue screen or a green screen, and then doing something graphically to place those into a video game. This was also being applied in the realm of computer games as we move into what is kind of called the Sillywood era, which we'll only touch on briefly. Again, we've done a whole episode on this, so we don't have to go into a huge amount of detail on it. I would argue an episode and a half. Yes. 
But basically, because graphics were getting more sophisticated and you had these techniques like digitization that allowed the graphics to look more realistic, that allowed the people to look more realistic, there was a thought within Hollywood that at this period of time with the multimedia revolution coming, that the movie industry and the video game industry were going to merge and you were basically going to get interactive movies where you're using all the conventions and tricks and filming of Hollywood but then giving the player some control over the proceedings to turn it into a game. This was a disastrous miscalculation for a lot of reasons. Most appreciably, that it's almost impossible to turn film footage into something interactive in any meaningful and entertaining way. Yes, quick-time events are definitely a big part of this, for sure. Basically, all you can do is is do that quick-time event thing where you occasionally give the player the opportunity to press a button or a series of buttons in order to choose which canned film track you're going to see next. They tried to do things with this, like making shooter games where the background was filmed and then the foreground had sprite-based objects that you were shooting at, and then you would do basically quick-time events to choose which tunnels you're going down. I mean, at that point, you can do it as a fully animated computer game, uh, video game, so much better. You get a better game out of it, so there's no point. There was this move towards so-called interactive movies where you're mixing video footage and gameplay and getting something out the other end. Even though this was kind of a cul-de-sac, it was kind of a dead end for the most part, though it has been revived a little bit in uh, games like Her Story more recently to some good effect. It's this idea that games are becoming more realistic, that you're getting into a more immersive space, that you're getting into a space that is going to fully surround you. Virtual reality is a big buzzword during the same period of time. The first attempt at virtual reality, I mean, not the first first, but the first kind of mainstream attempt at virtual reality. We did an episode on that, so I won't get into that. But this immersion concept is becoming a thing. On a more positive note, That immersion aspect is also being taken in other directions in a purely computer graphic sense. Certainly, one of the great innovators of that are the good people at Blue Sky that I know some people in chat are going to be happy that we're getting them a mention in here. Shout out to Paul Newrath and Ned Lerner and Doug Church and Chris Green and all of the crew. Blue Sky and id, id Software, are kind of the two companies that push us from this interaction and immersion means Hollywood and it means video to this idea that interaction and immersion means just really awesome computer graphics and building a 3D world in a 3D space. In some way, these two companies are very far apart from each other because Blue Sky is created by a bunch of basically MIT elite types who had the great education and had that academically charged environment, then spun out of that to create a game company, whereas id was kind of the punk rock group. You have these self-taught programmers, some of which were, quite frankly, juvenile delinquents, and then through programming and through art design and other tasks within game design, found a place to kind of channel their energy and created this kind of brash game company of id software. But there is something I think very important that connects the two of them, and that's that someone like John Carmack at id, 
and someone like a Paul Newrath or a Doug Church at Blue Sky. These were both people that took programming seriously on a whole nother level than most game designers did. What I mean by that is a lot of game designers grew up from a tradition of bedroom coding or self-taught coding. Some of them went to school for computer science, but often found that the computer science instruction was not really applicable to the real world. Sound familiar, Jeff? Maybe. (laughs) So took most of their lead in what they were doing from learning on their own or learning from fellow enthusiast programmers. Many of them were very talented programmers, very talented, but they didn't take an academic approach to coding which is fine for most games. It really is. But when you're trying to invent a whole new paradigm, a whole new way of doing things, and manipulate a computer like the IBM PC in a way that it's never been manipulated before, that quite simply is not going to be enough. What John Carmack, even though he was a self-taught programmer, he would go deep into the technical journals. He would go deep into the conference reports from places like SIGGRAPH, the graphics, computer graphics conference. He would go deep into the literature to find this one obscure thing that this one obscure guy did that made all the difference in doing some impressive coding effort. I think that academic mind of his is very similar to the academic minds of the main forces that were at Blue Sky, who all coming out of MIT and all being appreciative of the the MIT culture, not turned off by that, were also more academically inclined in that sense. That allowed both of these groups, it and Blue Sky, to go a lot deeper on what a PC could accomplish and go a lot deeper on what they could pull out of a PC in this time period. What you got out of that is you got video games, computer games specifically, but really video games generally, Finally getting off the grid. Now, when I say getting off the grid, that's kind of something that uh, Jimmy Mayer at the wonderful Digital Antiquarian blog came up with to describe Blue Sky's most influential game, Ultima Underworld. Before Ultima Underworld and games like its ilk, you had first-person games that existed in pseudo-3D worlds. Some of those, like Dungeon Master, were even in real time. But you couldn't really explore the entire world. Your path through the world was set. If you move the arrow one click forward, you move an exact amount of distance forward that is exactly already known by the program. If you move to the left, you move one to the left at an exact distance from the program. The wall is always going to be a set distance from you. If you have a wall in front of you, You can't continue to move closer to that wall by continuing to hit the arrow button in that direction because you are actually on a grid. You are on a grid of tiles. You are always in the center of your tile. You have a fixed relative position no matter how much you're moving around the screen, even in a real-time game like Dungeon Master. Of course, the reason for that is that the transform effects, the scaling and transform effects that are required to keep everything in proper perspective as you move closer and farther away from something are just so computationally intensive that it was very difficult to do on the systems of the time. 
In fact, it was thought to be impossible to do on the systems of the time, even at the time that Ultima Underworld and Wolfenstein 3D and Doom were accomplishing it. But Chris Green, who, you know, Ethan wants you to talk to him. He's talked to everybody else. He needs to talk to you. Talk to him, Chris Green. Talk to him. You are needed. Chris Green, when he was working for Ned Lerner at his previous company, Ned Lerner Research, which ended up merging in as, as part of Blue Sky becoming Looking Glass, and it's complicated, but we'll do an episode about it sometime. Chris Green came up with this great way to do texture-mapped 3D environments where it was good enough. He faked it. There were times where you could tell that the perspective was really skewed, but it was good enough. It faked it good enough that it could work. So he came up with a way to do a fully texture-mapped world where you could actually walk around in that world freely without being on a preset path or a preset grid. That's what I mean by saying we were taking games off the grid in the early 1990s for the first time. You can actually explore a world from top to bottom in not quite any way you want, but way more freedom of movement than you could beforehand. At the same time, Paul Neurath, when he was working at Origin Systems, had become more and more interested in trying to create a fully integrated video game experience, an immersive video game world, and created a game called Space Rogue, which combined planet-based RPG elements with polygonal 3D space combat. He didn't quite succeed in getting all the way he wanted with that game because basically the two halves of the game were very separate from each other. Like he had a plant-based RPG and he had a space-based flight simulator that didn't actually really interact with each other in a meaningful way. Once he had this technology that was developed by Chris Green, he felt that he could return to this kind of idea of a fully realized space. Inspired very much by Dungeon Master and by Wizardry, decided to create a role-playing game where you're in a first-person perspective, you're moving around, with a GUI interface, you're directly interacting with stuff on the screen. You're not bound by artificial limitations because of the interface or because of the graphics engine or anything like that. Full freedom of movement within a space. While he was at Origin Systems, Newrath had also very briefly worked with a gentleman by the name of John Romero, who uh, is, of course, one of the legendary co-founders of id Software. No relation to the John Romero of zombie fame. George Romero of zombie fame. That one. And I thought you were a zombie fan. I'm glad you had your pinball wizard moment before the end of this gigantic stream. Woohoo! In a phone conversation, Paul Newrath happens to mention to John Romero, yeah, we're doing this thing with texture map polygons. We're kind of doing this and this, and it's kind of working great. Then John Romero goes to John Carmack. He's like, can you do this? And he thinks for a moment. He's like, yeah, I can do that. They weren't directly inspired by Ultima Underworld in their implementation, but it got the id people thinking about being able to do the same thing, a texture-mapped, three-dimensional game space. The result of that was, well, first of all, Catacombs 3D, but nobody cares about that. So for our purposes, the results of that was Wolfenstein 3D, which was just something very new in PC gaming because the id people, what set them apart is they didn't only figure out how to do fancy things like scrolling on a PC, which they did with their Commander King games, which no one thought could be done, smooth scrolling on a PC at any speed. They didn't just figure out 
three-dimensional spaces and texture map polygons, which is something the Ultima Underworld people at Blue Sky figured out as well. They also figured out, and Carmack figured out, how to do all of this blazingly fast. Wolfenstein 3D was just made to be a pure adrenaline game, a pure action game, a pure high-speed, moving-around-blowing-things-up kind of game, shooting all the Nazis all the time. It was similar to the effect of Space Invader on the arcade. Space Invaders came into a staid, predictable environment, the pre-Space Invaders coin-operated video game space, and lit it on fire by making something that was just so much more unpredictable and adrenaline-inducing. Adrenaline-pumping, I should say. Wolfenstein did the same thing in a... It wasn't a tired computer game space, because there was a lot of stuff that was doing well and was popular, but everything was slow. RPGs were slow. Adventure games were slow. Console games were fast, but we're on PC. PC games are slow. They just created something that was pure speed and pure adrenaline. Unfortunately, the one thing about Wolfenstein 3D, and Wolfenstein 3D was a massive hit, don't get me wrong, the one thing about Wolfenstein 3D is that there wasn't really much to it except running around very nondescript rooms and shooting everything in sight. You would get lost really easy in that game. Exactly. It gets us most of the way to a new paradigm in computer gaming. It's almost too simple. That's why it's not Wolfenstein 3D that we remember, but it's Doom that we remember. Doom was its follow-up to Wolfenstein 3D. It was based on this idea of demons coming out of hell, gotta kill them all. Story's not important. It doesn't think story's important in games. Sometimes they're right. Not all the time. It's just based on running around and blowing things up, just like the Wolfenstein 3D was. The engine's been modified a bit. It's not full three-dimensional yet. You can't look up, down, left, right. You can't have a room where you have varying heights in the same room, so you're like on a platform or catwalk and looking down on the room below you. It's still a kind of faux 3D experience. All the enemies are sprite art. They're two-dimensional. They are not 3D at all. Which is actually kind of interesting. There's been modification different engines that have been written that can actually read the WAD files that has it so it is fully 3D. You can actually use your mouse to pivot your head up, down, left, right. What's interesting is like you go over some of the monsters and look down on them. You can actually, they just look like walking cardboard cutouts, literally walking cardboard cutouts. (laughs) And it's kind of fun just to blow them away that way. It's kind of fun. Uh Uh-huh. Absolutely. You could have floors of varying heights, so you could have steps and ramps and ups and downs, even though you couldn't have anything directly under each other. You could have lighting of different levels and different intensities. They combined that pure action and adrenaline from Wolfenstein with really just crackerjack level design by John Romero and by Sandy Peterson, who was an old hand in tabletop RPGs, created Call of Cthulhu. Created environments that were fiendishly designed that could have clever traps, surprises around every corner, lighting effects and sound effects to make things feel genuinely scary at times, intricate puzzles where you hit a switch here, it opens this door that spawns demons, then you have to hit this switch, which opens another door that spawns demons, layer upon layer of interactions so that you're not just running around featureless rooms blowing things up. Of course, Adrian Carmack, which amazingly is not in any way related to John Carmack, It's not a common name. Of course, did some really twisted art layered on top of it as well. So you got these really clever level designs 
and really adrenaline-pumping action mixed together to create something truly immersive and truly unprecedented, which is why you can really divide all of computer gaming into before Doom and after Doom. Even though there was more action-packed stuff going on in consoles and arcades, even occasionally in a pseudo-first-person format, this represents the true paradigm shift into the modern conception of what a AAA blockbuster should be. It should be immersive, it should be cleverly designed, it should be artistically distinct, it should be a multimedia feast for the senses, you know, it should really get your blood pumping. This is kind of the beginning of modern AAA gaming. Of course, the other big innovation that it has in it is the deathmatch mode. There had been games where you could play against each other in the past, obviously, on computer, on console, in the arcades, everywhere. Deathmatch was a whole new multiplayer experience. Network four computers together because you don't really have modern capabilities to play over the internet really yet. Network a bunch of computers together. Four people running around, blowing each other up, going all through a maze. Truly an incredible experience that had never been seen before. And it just transformed the landscape of gaming and set us on the path to the modern AAA blockbuster. I really think you can't overstate the significance of Doom on all of that. This is also about the time that was released in December 1993 that we first get a video game industry. There had not been a collective video game industry before, to my way of thinking. The coin-op people were set in their industry that had gone all the way back to the 19th century. The computer game people were pretty separate from the console people, mostly because of the crash. When the crash happened, the few computer game companies that were starting to get into console got really burned on it. They lost lots of money and didn't want to get back in. Then when Nintendo came along with their restrictive practices, these same companies that were used to an open platform, like a computer platform, really didn't want to get in on this content restriction, manufacturing costs, and big royalties and all of that. They remained mostly separate. Once Sega came in, there was some melding of the two. Electronic Arts, most famously, embraced Sega because Sega gave them a sweetheart deal where there wouldn't be as much control. Also, Electronic Arts was a publicly traded company, and if they didn't get into the console market, the board was probably going to fire Trip Hawkins, and Trip Hawkins didn't really want to be fired. So Electronic Arts bridged that gap, and a couple other companies did, but it was mostly separate. With all of these realistic graphics coming in, with the digitized graphics making for the more realistic fatalities in Mortal Kombat, for instance, there was also the game Night Trap, which was a fairly ridiculous kind of horror tale about preventing wannabe vampires from draining the blood from young women at a slumber party. It's really kind of lame, even by lame horror movie standards, but it was a level of realism because of the digitized video, because of the full motion video that had never been seen in a video game before, that these games, Mortal Kombat and Night Trap particularly, gained a lot of scrutiny by the United States Congress as being a new level of violence that was going to corrupt the youth or something like that. We won't get into the whole video game violence thing because that's its whole other thing. It could be a whole episode on its own, actually. We should probably do the video game violence episode sometime. There's enough there for an episode. We could do it at the next one. Yep. What I want to emphasize here in terms of the broad history of video games is that Congress decided this was a problem. Congress subpoenaed Nintendo and Sega and the major trade associations to testify before Congress. 
live on C-SPAN, you can still see this on YouTube if one wants to, you could see various elements of the video game industry just tearing each other apart. They weren't focused on presenting a united front to the Congress that was threatening their way of doing business. They just fell into infighting, Sega and Nintendo particularly, because they didn't like each other because of the console war going on at the time. So this was a disaster. Electronic Arts uh, vice president by the name of Jack Highstand was watching this on C-SPAN, and he was like, this is nuts. This is going to be the end of us if we can't get in front of Congress and present a united voice. So he got the permission of the CEO of EA to look into forming a trade association. Nintendo and Sega, they realized that their performance after the fact was not very good, and so they were kind of chastened and willing to go along with this. With Highstand kind of taking a leading role, they went and formed a trade organization specifically for video games. Before that, they were members of the Software Publishing Association, which was a computer software trade organization that cared about the big companies like the Microsofts and the Borlands of the world than they cared about the video game companies. Meanwhile, their trade show was CES, which was the Electronic Industry Association, which was the consumer electronics industry. They were about everything from car alarms to stereos to washing machines, anything that had electronics in it, not just games. They were treated as second-class citizens at the trade show, so their lobbying organization was a software organization that didn't care about them. Their trade show organization was a consumer electronics industry organization that didn't care about them. This whole idea of what is a video game, is it a toy, is it a consumer electronic, what is it? How do the arcade people factor into this? What about the computer game people? All of this confusion was now creating a real problem where they might be regulated by the Congress, which could destroy the creativity of the industry, and that is not an understatement. Because you look at the other times that Congress got involved in regulating an industry or threatened regulation in such a way that that industry decided to do its own self-regulation, to put it more accurately. When they did it to movies, you got the Hayes Code. The Hayes Code set back the advancement of motion pictures by 30 years. It's why you mostly only got empty-headed, dumb musical reviews for a long time in the uh, 30s and 40s and 50s and whatnot. Then they did the same thing with the comic book industry. The comic book industry agreed to abide by the comics code. Wait. You said musical reviews? Oh, yeah. Musical reviews were a real thing, you know, based on the idea of a stage musical review where you have a bunch of acts, big show acts, getting up one after the other to uh, perform things. They did musical reviews in motion pictures as well. All those musicals. So that's why we have so many in the 60s and 70s. Well, I mean, they did stuff that wasn't musicals, too. But, yeah, then they turned their attention to the comic book industry, and the comic book industry agreed to abide by the comics code. That set back the comic book industry by decades because they weren't allowed to do any kind of serious stories. It all had to be very, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys, black and white, no drugs, no sex, just very plain. The video game industry, whatever that meant at that time, because nobody had a good definition of what the video game industry was, was being threatened by the same specter of regulation. Either Congress is going to do it, or they'll have to agree to the appointment of an outside agency like the Comic Code Authority that is going to be really draconian in the way it does things. 
High Stand is able to whip all of these guys in shape. They found their own lobbying organization, the uh, International Software Developers Association, ISDA. They create their own ratings board, the Entertainment Software Ratings Board, that is kind of based on what the motion picture people are doing, but is not controlled by the motion picture people. Because they now have their own lobbying organization that they have to pay for, they decide to create their own trade show, the Electronic Entertainment Expo, or E3, allowing them to break away from CES. The process of this working itself out is more complicated than, of course, I'm doing in this general overview episode. Of course. Yeah. But the main takeaway is that because of this threat of congressional regulation, the various actors in coin-operated games, computer games, console games, have to get their act together and get together and present a united front and present a plan that is going to allow them to get Congress off their back without completely compromising their artistic integrity. This, to me, is the point that the video game industry has formed. Once they have a lobbying organization, a trade show, once the computer people and the console people and the coin-op people are more closely working together and talking to each other, I think that's when you get a true video game industry. Before that, you had the video game industries, plural. Now you have a unified industry. So that's a watershed moment, and this is the moment that Doom is being born into as well, and Doom is the beginning of a new paradigm in game design that's happening at the exact same period. It really feels like this period at the beginning of the 1990s is when it is all starting to come together. We made it to the 90s, folks. We made it to the 90s. Well, believe me, we're about to Zoom, and I mean that. Prepare the shuttle for launch. Now as we wind down, now we're going to like blow through a bunch of stuff really fast because we are going to get this done in one more episode. We're going to make this work. We are. We have an industry now. We have a new paradigm with Doom. We have a paradigm that's more immersive and is more interesting to a wider segment of the audience. There's still a lot of people that blowing away demons from hell just isn't their cup of tea. We're still moving the goalposts to be more inclusive, even if it's still a particular type of person that's mostly interested in this kind of thing, if that makes sense. I think the final step for kind of legitimizing video games and bringing them in as a mainstream piece of entertainment that can be enjoyed by all ages is the arrival of the Sony PlayStation. We've talked about this a little bit before. Those four magical letters, S-O-N-Y, on that piece of hardware, really is the point that consoles are no longer seen necessarily as a toy so much as a consumer electronic. This is the company that gave us the Walkman. This is the company that gave us the camcorder. This is the company that, even earlier than that, gave us the Triniton television. This is the company that provides electronics that everybody uses and everybody interacts with and everyone enjoys. If Sony is creating a console, a video game machine, then that says something. The other thing that's kind of important about Sony coming in is they're the company that realizes we can do polygonal graphics now in the home. Even something like Doom didn't actually do polygonal graphics, they did cheats. 
polygonal graphics were in the arcade and they'd been becoming pretty sophisticated in the arcade, particularly in the early 90s, because with the end of the Cold War, you had a bunch of companies that were involved in that military industrial complex that is shrinking once again. You have simulation companies like General Electric's Aerospace Division or Evans and Sutherland that are involved in making very expensive, very realistic simulators for military equipment. With the Cold War over, they don't have the same level of uh, defense contracts that they had before. So they're looking for new business. At the same time, big arcade companies like Sega and Namco are looking to really get into polygonal graphics. They've been there a little bit before, but it's still pretty rough around the edges. So the combination of the technical expertise with polygonal stuff that the military simulation companies have with the expertise that the arcade companies have of making hardware that is cheaper and more affordable while still getting maximum capability out of it leads to a fruitful period in the early 1990s arcade, kind of the last fruitful period in the arcade, at least in the West. Japan, it's a little different, where you get games like Ridge Racer and Daytona USA driving games with polygonal graphics and polygonal worlds. In the case of Ridge Racer and Daytona as well, uh, texture maps on those polygons to give better graphical look. You get a fighting game like Virtua Fighter, which compared to Mortal Kombat or Street Fighter is kind of clunky and kind of janky, but has full 3D models and vaguely realistic flow to the animation of the characters, even if the characters themselves are kind of hideous to look at, especially today. There's a sense that we are to the point that we can provide 3D worlds, but the traditional video game companies in the home didn't see it. Sega thought that the Sega Saturn was going to be a sprite-based system, their follow-up to the Genesis. Nintendo could see this future coming because they partnered with Silicon Graphics, which is another wrinkle in this period, is that the motion picture industry is moving to more sophisticated CGI driven by powerful computer workstations. The workstation companies, now that they're kind of conquering the movie industry, are looking to move into the video game industry as well. SGI ends up hooking up with Nintendo. Nintendo realizes that this 3D revolution is coming, but they think it's two or three years further down the road. So their Project Reality, which becomes the Nintendo 64, is meant to debut a little after Sega gets their system to market. Sony unexpectedly shows everybody that that 3D future is here right now. Now, I realize that the Sony PlayStation cheats a lot. Most of the games are not full 3D worlds. It's mostly 3D models on top of pre-rendered two-dimensional backgrounds. There's a real mess in the way that the video processor and the CPU communicate that leads to a lot of bottlenecks that means that the hardware doesn't often even reach its full potential. Nobody thought that polygonal graphics were coming into the home for another few years. Sony just leapfrogged everybody. They got a system in that could at least do passably immersive worlds even if they still had to do cheats like fixed camera angles and awkward tank controls where your character doesn't move around very well. It created a space where games could expand and be more. More cinematic, more mature, more interesting. Some of the examples, of course, that you see of that is Tomb Raider. There was an idea going all the way back to Prince of Persia in 1989, which was done by Jordan Mechner, 
which was a game that was very focused on fluid animation through use of rotoscoping, death-defying platforming, and occasional fights with enemies while you go around solving puzzles. This had been done in a 2D space and was very influential in the 2D space, but now the people at Core Design saw that with this new generation of hardware that they could take this into three dimensions and create Tomb Raider, create this acrobatic character leaping through these ancient tombs and using pistols to shoot all sorts of predators, you know, have really big tits at the same time. Is that entirely appropriate, though? (laughs) I mean, it sells. So you get something like Tomb Raider, which even though it's a bit ridiculous, it's one of the first times that a video game character is truly able to become a sex symbol. Even though that original Lara Croft doesn't look like much today, in a time where the best you could get before that was Samus running around in pixel form at the end of Metroid, this was something big and it was something that They were able to market outside the traditional video game world. They were able to market this within the music industry and within the fashion industry. It's about it becoming a mature entertainment medium in a way, no longer just seen as something that the kids are doing. Or you have Resident Evil, which is able to create an actual kind of real horror experience. It wasn't very easy to create a horror experience with pixels. Even early efforts at 3D, like Alone in the Dark, which was an influence on Resident Evil, were more silly than scary. Resident Evil, even though it often relied on cheap jump scares to achieve its effect, created an environment that actually felt to some degree scary and created, again, something that didn't just feel like a children's form of entertainment. Hideo Kojima had always been a wannabe filmmaker. That's what he really wanted to do in life. He had always tried to make even his 2D Metal Gear games be quote-unquote cinematic, but once he had a 3D space that he could work in, he was able to create a thriller plot. Yeah, his plots are needlessly convoluted and all of this stuff. I'm not saying that what these people are doing is living up to the best of what other forms of storytelling medium can offer. For the first time, we're getting this idea that video games can be a cinematic experience. Video games can provide a more mature experience. Video games can provide characters and moments that transcend a just children's entertainment medium. That really, to me, is the big thing that the PlayStation brings to these whole proceedings. It's what starts us down this path to what's considered AAA today. I heard some people cried in Final Fantasy VII. It didn't do it for me. I think it's going to be sadder, though, in the remake. Oh, my gosh. That's a complete tangent, but I'm really impressed how the Final Fantasy VII remake has made the characters feel like fully realized characters, and I think it's going to be way more tragic when Aerith gets stabbed in the remake, you know, 20 years from now when they get to that part of the story. (laughs) Final Fantasy VII remakes are like our live streams of our podcast, Jeff. They just get more and more out of control, and everyone wishes they'd just hurry up and get to the end already. I see. Hmm. The other thing that really kind of finally knits the whole thing together, because that's what we're going to focus on now. We're not going to focus on the continuing progression of individual genres or individual games. We do have these more immersive experiences starting in console, and of course at the same time, it's happening in computer entertainment as well, which is still at this point a fairly separate thread 
from what's going on in console. We had Doom getting us part of the way there. It had the 2.5D look. It kind of faked 3D. It kind of had some multiplayer capability to the extent that you could get computers networked together circa 1993. It had this kind of modding capability where people could get into the files and make changes, edit their own levels, turn the demons into Barney, etc. All of these things were kind of taken to the next level by the company when they did Quake just a few years later. Quake was kind of a half-finished, half-baked product in a lot of ways because they had originally been planning to go well beyond Doom in terms of world-building and story and gameplay and all of that kind of stuff. They basically just had to make Doom with Lovecraftian horrors instead of hellish demons at the end of the day because they ran out of time. In terms of the game engine, in terms of going full 3D with no more sprites for characters, in terms of having some truly useful multiplayer matchmaking capabilities, and in terms of taking modding even further than even Doom did, this kind of creates the immersive experience on PC at the same time that the PlayStation is pushing that immersive experience on console. Then after Quake, you get Half-Life, which finally adds that story element to the immersion. You had the interactive movie paradigm where you always have to stop for the cutscene to learn the story. So you do a little game, and then you do a little story. You do a little game, a little story. The id people, of course, were not interested in story. That quote that Ethan alluded to in the stream, but John Carmack once said that the plot of a game is akin to the plot of a porno. It needs to be there because people expect it, but it's not important. Whereas the people at Valve come along, and we did a whole episode on Half-Life, which is, again, we are trying our best to keep this very broad overview. Then Half-Life comes along and says that, well, we can have this immersive experience within this 3D world, and we can shoot lots of bad guys and pummel headcrab zombies to death with crowbars and tell a story at the same time. Now you're just building layer upon layer of immersion. First you get the gameplay immersion, then you get the graphical immersion, then you get the story immersion. It's all building on top of each other until you get to something like Grand Theft Auto 3, say, where all of these elements are to some degree working together very well and very much in harmony. That's kind of the core of what the modern AAA experience hopes to be. It isn't what the modern AAA experience always actually manages to be. It's an attempt. Of course, the consequence of all of this sophistication and all of this rowing of things and everything becoming bigger and more complex is you get stuck in a system where you need very big team sizes. These teams need to be highly specialized with more and more individuals put on each part of the project. If you're not delivering something that is as good or better than what the last guy delivered before you, then you're considered a disappointment. This is a period of skyrocketing budgets, skyrocketing team sizes, skyrocketing advertising and marketing budgets, intense competition for shelf space in retailers. What happens during this period as well is that you get a real slimming down of the industry, and there have been several waves of this. 
the first big wave came during the course of the 90s when most of the computer game industry in the United States and in the United Kingdom, both places, consolidated. Companies were either acquired, became acquirers, or just fractured and fell apart spectacularly. You had another wave of this happen in Japan in the early 2000s. The Japanese, just because of the way their development culture worked, had a real hard time adjusting to bigger budgets, bigger team sizes. Project management was very difficult, and so you had these companies that needed to merge with each other and expand. So that's when you got Square and Enix combining. You got Koei and Tecmo combining. You got Bandai and Namco, Sega and Sammy. A lot of these companies had to consolidate because this new level of game development that was needed was really hard on them. In the late 2000s, it looked like Japanese video game development was really going downhill because the move to HD graphics and the amount of people and the amount of tools needed for that were kind of beyond what the Japanese industry was used to. Personnel management was basically, you stay at work as long as the boss does, and if the boss stays for 12 hours, you stay for 12 hours. But you didn't necessarily work all 12 hours, you just had to make sure you were in the building. Of course, those kinds of hours were unsustainable, so people would take naps and goop off. The result of that is that project management, you know, projects would fall behind schedule and was very inefficient. They also didn't believe in the use of middleware. They believed in using custom tools each time they started a new game. That just didn't work for HD development as as well. The Japanese finally got a hold of that, and we have more modern games like Dark Souls that are very interesting and very good. It took them a while to get there. Then you had a third wave at the end of the 2000s where the mid-tier publishers that had survived the initial round but hadn't grown as big as an EA or an Activision Blizzard, then they all disintegrated in the mid-2000s. I'm thinking of companies like Midway and IDOS, which was purchased by Square Enix. There's been these kind of corporate apocalypses that have really slimmed down the AAA space. There's also, of course, been the institutionalization of crunch culture which is necessary, whether it should be necessary or not, I'm not saying, but has been considered necessary by the industry in order to keep that level of production going and that level of quality going on the timescales that they feel they need to get stuff done. This expansion into more immersive games and into AAA gaming has caused a lot of problems, obviously, within the AAA industry, but it has also led to new heights in terms of games as well, in terms of gameplay experiences, when you get things like Uncharted 2 or The Last of Us, the original one, or the latest God of War, where everything's kind of working together and you're pulling in all sorts of different kinds of systems. We haven't talked about this yet, but the other paradigm that's swooping in while Doom and Resident Evil and all these games are expanding our scope of what we think a cinematic experience is You have Blue Sky slash Looking Glass and its successors coming along, showing us how we can take all these finicky, fiddly systems that were in old school computer RPGs and whatnot, where you're making character adjustments, paying attention to stats and inventory management and all of that, how we can meld all of this stuff into other genres and kind of combine the statistical side of things with the action side of things and with the storytelling side of things. I'm thinking particularly of System Shock and System Shock 2, which do such a good job of blending first-person shooter elements with RPG elements with storytelling elements. 
I'm also, of course, thinking of Deus Ex, which was Ion Storm, but it's really a successor of that looking glass tradition uh, because of the people who were involved. How that becomes very much a template for how you can move through a world and have multiple ways of overcoming obstacles while keeping a lot of that shooter paradigm going and a lot of that RPG paradigm going. You kind of have this melding together that Looking Glass and its successors are really pushing. At the same time, you have companies like id really pushing the cinematic side of things. I think kind of the final thing that really brings together a complete conception of a video game industry rather than separate things going on in computers, separate things going on in consoles, is really the Xbox. The Xbox is kind of a pivotal moment in video game history because even though as a platform it was only mildly successful, even though some of the innovations that they put in there, like having a hard drive in it, ended up being a little too soon and probably they'd have done just as well to not go there. The Xbox did a couple of things that were very important. First of all, it did really start as a PC as game console. Obviously, the Xbox, as was released, was not that. I may not be a very technical person, but I'm not that untechnical. The original conception of it was to basically be a PC in a console format. Because of that, and because of the fact that they were working in something that somewhat resembled a DirectX paradigm, which is, of course, where the Xbox got its name to begin with, they had a development environment that was more welcoming to computer game companies. This was kind of the point that you really finally had the big computer game companies, the big computer game developers come in and be a part of the console space. Bethesda puts Morrowind on the Xbox. BioWare does games for the Xbox. ID does games for the Xbox. It's like we're finally pulling in the best and brightest of the PC world, and they're finally playing on console. It's also the platform that fixed the problem of how do you play a first-person shooter on console. One of the things that was holding back consoles from fully embracing that Doom feel or that Quake feel is that first person just didn't work very well on console. And while there had been isolated successes like GoldenEye, Halo is really the game that figured out how to do it. Some of it was little touches, like having your pointer pause, your targeting reticule pause for just an instant when you uh, passed over a target so that you had something that was a little similar to the precision that you got in mouse and keyboard. That kind of stuff really made it work. And of course, this was the first system that really had dual analog sticks in the way we think of them today. I realized the DualShock controller was on the PlayStation. The way the analog sticks were done on that Xbox controller, if you could manage to get your hands around an Xbox controller, were really tuned to this idea that you have your movement stick and your look around stick and cemented that paradigm in game design. Then, of course, a couple of years after the Xbox launched, you had Xbox Live. You finally had an internet capability in consoles so you could play each other online. There'd been many attempts to do that before, even going all the way back to the old Atari and Mattel systems back in the day using cable. This was the first time that it was really done in a practical way, in a way that people could appreciate. Broadband had just enough penetration at this point to make it work. 
The multiplayer aspect that PC had for itself was no longer special. The first-person mouse keyboard controls that PC had were no longer special. The development environment was crafted in such a way that it made some of the elite PC developers come in and say, okay, fine, we'll play around with console. And there's something really interesting about the Xbox, which I only found out in the last month or so. Xbox actually has, and this calls back to our hacker, our talk about the hacking community back a bunch of episodes ago when we started this entire journey. There is a vibrant, 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 or at least was a very vibrant, vibrant Xbox hacking community that really got into, they managed to get their hands on the development kits for the Xbox and then were able to use that in order to put their own games on there, use the development codes in order to put their own software out on Xbox Live. A lot of that stuff was not secure. This led to some interesting things and a lot of the people unfortunately involved because they let this information kind of get out there too far. It led to a bunch of people buying a bunch of Xboxes that were development kits and then that led to a bunch of other legal action. There was a guy who uh, actually pretended to work for Microsoft and actually pulled the Xbox 360, a demo unit, before it was released out of Microsoft offices. It's insane. There's a bunch of crazy stuff with that. I'm going to throw a link to the two podcast episodes that cover this in the show notes. If you have any interest in this at all, I would definitely check those out. (laughs) The story is just a five and a half. It is fascinating. It has all this hacking stuff, all this physical penetration testing. These guys who are just have that sort of like rebellious, I'm going to play my video game the way I want to kind of mentality going on. It's wonderful. Absolutely. Incidentally, I have played Mario Kart 64 on an Xbox before. And the reason you have that is because of these hacking communities. <laughs> kind of the final thing that we want to talk about in, in the context of this is we've talked about how we've gotten to the modern AAA game, how you take a little bit of what it's doing with Doom, you mix in a little bit of what Looking Glass is doing with System Shock, you add a dash of Xbox Live, you get something and then, you know, throw Laura Croft and her tits in there. You get something akin to the modern AAA space. What's left then is kind of the challenge of where the AAA space is right now. The main thing, you know, driving this crunch and whatnot is you have games that are set at a certain price level at this point. Price has fluctuated a lot over time, but it looks like that $60 price point is, at least in the near future, pretty immovable. As games get more complex, teams get bigger, budgets get bigger, and sales windows get smaller, because you have the hit game syndrome coming where games don't have a long tail, you have a lot of challenge in trying to kind of wrangle this all together. And a lot of what we've seen there, some of it's worked, some of it hasn't. Certainly one of the first things people try to do is increase the length of games. Just get that play value up higher by giving you 50 hours, 60 hours, 70 hours, 100 hours of play. In some cases that works, but in a lot of cases it just means you're putting a lot of empty fetch quests in between the main plot, which does pad out the length of the game, but isn't necessarily increasing the value of the game. Another attempt, of course, has been to do annualization, to take advantage of the fact that you can create a game and have all the assets in the engine and everything together, 
and then create a sequel that comes out the very next year that only has very slight changes in graphics or gameplay or whatever, but takes you to a whole nother world. In sports, that's been common ever since the John Madden football games way back in the late 80s, early 90s. Ubisoft, I think, was one of the companies that was really pushing this idea of annualization in the 2000s first with Assassin's Creed. Of course, Activision Blizzard got on that bandwagon as well, with Call of Duty especially. Again, this is a way to try to maximize what you're getting out of your technology because you can create the second game more easily than the first, you know, have alternating teams working on things. Of course, a lot of that just leads to burnout culture crunch. It also leads to player fatigue and burnout. I mean, Call of Duty is still kind of making it work for itself, but a lot of other franchises that they've tried to annualize, like Tony Hawk and Guitar Hero specifically for Activision, just end up crashing to pieces. Of course, collector's editions are a big thing now because if a game should really cost $80, then we can take our $60 game, throw in a cheap statue, and charge $80 for it and get what we're actually supposed to get for it. And of course, the uh, the other side of that as well is DLC add-ons, which work in some contexts. They make sense in a game like, say, Guitar Hero or Rock Band, where you're adding songs and they were never going to ship 5,000 songs with the game when it launched, so it makes sense to add more. Sometimes you get Horse Armor DLC instead. The latest shift in these kind of AAA games is this whole idea of free-to-play, which is something that initially came out of Korea and East Asia that more had to do with the fact that people wanted to play games and through the robust broadband connections available in Korea because they invested heavily in broadband, could play games online and play games with each other but couldn't necessarily afford the computers to play on them because Korea was in a wonky period in the late 90s where infrastructure was developing faster than the standard of living was rising. So you had this strange period where people demanded games, wanted games, had the wherewithal to play games and the infrastructure to play games, but couldn't afford the hardware. So they came up with the whole paradigm of go to the internet cafe, the PC bong, buy time on the game. So you're buying in short increments instead of really buying the game or paying a subscription. And then they get the rest of their revenue by giving you character customization items, that kind of thing. Even though that started in that context, now as AAA becomes more unsustainable, you find the concept of persistent worlds and free-to-play or at least free-to-buy activities becoming more and more prevalent in games like Destiny. Of course, that also gets you to those dreaded loot boxes. But I need loot boxes to have the pretty skins to win the game, right? Yes, what started as an innocent hat-collecting activity in Team Fortress 2 has become the dark bane of gaming, though I would say that it seems to be receding some. The loot box thing finally got so reviled that their presence are lessened, but they're not gone. Certainly, even when loot boxes go, other free-to-play mechanics are coming in. I do think AAA gaming probably has to change. I don't think the way it is today is sustainable. I think at some point we crossed over from look at these great immersive worlds I can be in to you need a better hat. Give me two ninety nine, and I'll give it to you. Let's not. That's a bit of a down note on a way to end it on, but I mean, there's still some wonderful experiences coming out in AAA gaming. Some great, immersive, interesting games. However, I think that in the future, I think at some point there's going to have to be a real melding 
of what's going on in AAA today in terms of production values and what's going on in indie gaming in terms of presentation if we're going to bring AAA gaming to the next level. I mean, I think we'll get to a next level. When you look back over the grand history of all this thing, as we just did, there are other times where there was stagnation or there was disinterest or there was improper monetization. The industry has always found its way forward, and I think it will this time too. I think this is definitely a period of some uncertainty. On the plus side, that dovetails very nicely into our next episode after this gigantic extravaganza goes out when we will look at that other side of gaming. Because one thing that I did kind of want to cover in this whole series of things that there just frankly wasn't time for because we're not streaming another episode. It's This is enough <laughs> streaming. I did want to look at the growth of AAA in parallel with what started to going on in casual gaming, social gaming, indie gaming, etc. That is way too much. We'll be here way too long to force it into the giant history of everything. But it will make a nice topic for our next episode. The unofficial fifth episode? (laughs) No, it's not an unofficial fifth episode. It really isn't. I'm not even being facetious because we're not going to try to tie it into some grand movement of video games. It's going to be back to our detailed look at a specific segment of the industry. So no, it's not a secret fifth episode you could call it content that had to be cut from this episode if you would but we'll kind of look at the expansion of video games for everyone because what we did here is we kind of really looked at how AAA gaming progressed for a long time AAA gaming and gaming generally were pretty synonymous with each other starting in the middle of the 90s somewhere you started to get more of that offshoot of casual gaming I mean there'd been casual games before that obviously but kind of as a distinct separate field. And this was a period when we started to see the widening of the player base, because in AAA games, the Sony PlayStation and their deliberate move to target college students and young professionals is kind of the last time that AAA gaming really had a significant move to encompass a whole other group of people. But at the same time, gaming has been moving sideways to encompass basically everybody through other delivery platforms, other types of games, other experiences. That's something we really haven't covered at all in They Create Worlds in any of our episodes, so this will be an exciting new topic that we can probably realistically spend two episodes on. It's not the appendix to this. This is the end. This is done. We're done. Thank you so much, everyone that tuned in. If it was for five minutes or like a couple of you, eight hours. (laughs) Thank you so much for being a part of this. I hope it was enjoyable. I hope you got something out of it. Now Jeff is going to go slowly insane as he tries to turn this into actual episodes. We will see you next time on They Create World, where we go into more of the crazy. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies that Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is PCWpodcast please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. 
found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 